Welcome to the podcast of Unity Fort Worth. In it, you'll hear this week's message and meditation. If you'd like to hear and see the complete service, you can always find it at unityfortworth.org or on the Unity Fort Worth Facebook page. Unity Fort Worth focuses on positive and practical Christianity with a willingness to explore the entire world of religion and spiritual thought. Unity Fort Worth streams live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Thanks for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. So if you were here last week or watched the service from last week, you know that we split it in um, two parts. And the topic is how to leave a spiritual legacy. And what is the difference between how we usually approach legacy and what the difference is to our spiritual legacy? And we talk very briefly about that usually when we approach legacy, we think in terms of concrete material things, right? Leaving a house, leaving money, leaving estates to our uh, children and, and families. And it's usually in the context of at the time when we are gone, at least for a little while from this earthly plane. Well, we challenge that notion and that idea by asking ourselves, well, is that really something that we would like or should um, live into? What about our spiritual legacy? What about a legacy that we could leave behind right here, right now? And hopefully you had some time to think about this. What is your spiritual legacy that you leave behind in every moment of your lives? What is it that if for some reason you will be gone in a second, what is it that others will remember you having done, you having said, or you made them feel? Remember that quote from Maya Angelou, what life truly is about? I'll bring it up a little later again. So we were using a scripture story from the Hebrew scriptures to kind of evolve into this idea, are we really supposed to spend all our lives to gather material wealth so that we can leave it behind for someone else to enjoy? Or is there something else that we are asked to do from a spiritual perspective. As children of God or expressions of the divine, what is it that we are asked to do? And we should be asking ourselves, what are we here for? Now, that doesn't mean that we should overthrow everything that we have saved up or let go of everything. There's a certain amount or a certain way of being that absolutely makes sense, especially in a modern society. But you got to ask yourself, what is enough? And when is it enough? And what about the legacy that you're already leaving behind? Because we have such a tendency to wait, don't we? Like when we look at the way we usually learn about some of the spiritual goals in Christianity, it's heaven, right? But usually in traditional Christianity, we are taught that heaven is at some point in our lives 
or actually past our lifetime, if we're lucky, where there's some sort of a judgment that's happening, and then either we end up in heaven or in hell. Okay? It's described as a place that we go to after the fact. Similar in Hinduism, where we have this idea of karma, where karma is utilized in the same way as heaven and hell is utilized in Christianity. It's a form of control, almost, from a religious point of view to tell us, you better be good, so that the next time when you reincarnate, you don't end up as a cockroach. Right? That's our goal. Don't be a cockroach in your next lifetime, so better be good. Now, there's some truth to it. There's, there's some truth to it that religious institutions use those moral ideas and concepts to help us to stay in line, and sometimes we need that kind of help, don't, don't we? Because we have, if we had all the freedom in the world, sometimes we do some really stupid stuff, right? So there is some, there is some sense in having that. But the procrastination of the ultimate goal to reach heaven, to reach nirvana or moksha, to escape the, the cycle of samsara, that endless birth and rebirth, that should never be something that we, need to, that we should see outside of ourselves and far in the future. That should always be something that we recognize as an opportunity to do so right now. And that might be difficult, right? It might be difficult when we look at ourselves, who and what we are, with all our judgments and limitations and things that are happening, and then to see, oh, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be per perfect. At least in unity, we have this idea that we already are perfect, that we have the ability to express perfection in every moment in our lives. We use Jesus Christ as an example quite often. Jesus Christ, not something that we believe we have to put up on a pedestal as the only human being that ever achieved the ability to express freely who and what he was. But just as an example, just as much as we find in other religions, such as Buddhism, through the story of Gautama Buddha or Siddhartha, how he reached enlightenment under the body tree, and so many other spiritual teachers that are still alive today, who are good examples of showing us how we can leave our spiritual legacy behind by stopping to stand in our own way and get out of the way and just be who and what we are. So there is this really interesting story in the Hebrew scriptures. It's almost a Bible within itself, a mini Bible within the Bible, because the story is so vast and so complex and has so many facets to, to address and look through that it's very hard to even get through the story in one go. But this story is the story, I believe, that really tells us that our legacy is not that much connected to our material possessions, but only about the spirit that we bring to our lives. And as you remember from last 
week, I talked about Job here being in distress, his wife in the background, kind of separating from him. Job used to be the richest man in the land of Uz, and he was also considered to be the most righteous man. And so God gave him all the riches because he was righteous. And then Satan came about and said, well, you know, God, the only reason why Job is so rich is because, or Job is so faithful to you is because he is so rich. So what would happen when we take away his wealth? And God agreed to let Satan do that. So Job here now has all his wealth gone, including his ten children and all his servants and all his estates and animals and possessions that he had. And so he wasn't really very happy in this moment. And we probably can all relate, right? When someone will come and take away our house and our car and the, our bank accounts and all the way, we wouldn't really necessarily be happy. And that was really the test that we are seeing here. And after a little lamenting and a little complaining, Job finally went back and said, well, I still have my life. And so he worshipped God again. He refocused on his righteousness. And then Satan wasn't satisfied with that, so Satan said, well, you know, Job is still pretty happy, so what if we did something really bad, terrible onto Job, see if he loses his faith then? And God agreed to that as well, and then Job ended up with lots of boils on his, on his body. And that's when he went into this enormous, enormously long lamentation because he was starting to doubt what he is actually here for. Now, you might heard of this story before, and you might heard of this story in a very different context, theologically speaking, because scholars look at this story and say there's multiple theological lessons that we can learn. I claim today that what we truly can learn about this story is that even if we have lots of possessions, even if life works really well for us, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are righteous people. Just because it works out doesn't necessarily mean that we are perfectly aligned with God, which in unity we translate into being perfectly aligned with who and what we truly are. It's not so connected as we sometimes believe. The flip side of that is also true. Just because we may struggle with wealth or have some difficulties with some things to manifest in our lives does not, does not necessarily mean that we are not righteous or that we're doing something wrong. The problem is that if we simplify spiritual teachings too much and say, well, you know, I'm really wealthy, so I must be God-fearing, or I'm really poor, so I'm doing something wrong. If we simplify too much, we're not doing ourselves a service. And here is where these three guys come in that demonstrate this really well. There's three friends that show up 
after Job started to get really, really desperate. And at first, the three friends are quiet for seven days and seven nights. Unfortunately, then they started talking. And you probably have had this experience before, that you had a really tough time, and then a friend came along, and then they would sit with you for a little while, but unfortunately, then they would start talking. Right? Ever had that? Giving advice and telling you all the things you've done wrong and how you should live your life so you feel better. Ever had that in your life? Right? A couple of times? Yeah. Not too many. You, you guys are doing great. I have it all the time. So, <laughs> and, and so these three friends take that position. So the names of those friends are important because they have metaphysical and, and metaphysical meaning um, coming out of the traditions. Uh, Eliphaz is the first, Eliphaz, then Bildad, and so far. Eliphaz represents the strength that we believe we need to have in order to accomplish anything. But it's not the spiritual strength. It's not the strength that's represented by the Apostle Andrew. It's the physical strength, something that we gain, yes, and it seems like we're appearing to be strong, but it's not strong enough to really get something done. It doesn't have that ultimate quality of being spiritually strong. Bildad, the second friend, he represents that part of ourselves that's trying to be spiritual, but just doesn't get there yet. Uh, John the Baptist is often uh, referred to that, that John the Baptist actually was a very brilliant man and had all the qualities he needed to be just like Jesus Christ, but he just couldn't get there because it was all about the intellect. It was all about reading all the books in the world and learning everything about everything, but never really truly surrendering to it and applying it just as Jesus did. So Bildad, the second friend, represents that. And then so far, the last one is just one that complains a lot, right? Who sees, sees wrong in absolutely everything. So you have these three friends, right? One who appears strong, but just not strong enough. The other one who thinks he knows everything, but just doesn't know enough. And then the third one who just sees everything as black, right? And those three friends for 34 chapters out of 42, or more, more than 42, but 42 is when God starts to respond. But for 34 chapters, these three friends just unload on Job and find absolutely everything that's wrong with Job and what Job should have done to not lose his possessions, what Job should do to go back into the good graces of God, and so forth. And like I said, if you ever read Job, then you know it's hard to get through those 34 chapters. Because not only are they kind of ridiculous in a lot of ways, but they're in a, in a poetry form, in a form of a poem, they actually pretty much tell you exactly what we do when we are on the wrong path. Rather than just realizing, hey, I made a mistake, let's correct that mistake, we're actually going on and on and on, 
for the equivalence of 34 chapters, which could be days and weeks and probably years, to just beat upon ourselves, beat ourselves up for not having done the right thing. Now notice I said that God has not spoken yet. Remember, God started out this whole thing with a bet with Satan. And remember, in unity, we don't believe in Satan, right, as a separate being or someone who has any power. Satan is just an expression. It's when we fail to see the divinity within ourselves and we start to believe those limitations. That's how we uh, express that Satan side, if you will. doesn't make us terrible people. It's just the way it is and how it is explained in the story. But God doesn't speak. God doesn't speak when Job was complaining. God doesn't speak when Job was lamenting and saying, I've done all this to you, God. God doesn't speak for the 34 chapters when the friends were uh, trying to figure out what Job did, did wrong. He only speaks after a fourth person speaks. A young guy called Elihu. And Elihu basically says, he rebukes the friends and Job for just not getting the point. And he starts to speak from the heart and starts to speak in terms of what life really is about. And he only speaks for six chapters. And for those six chapters, he's kind of like rebuking those four people. And as a young person, he almost hesitated a little bit. But only then God spoke. And interestingly, God did not speak to the complaints. God did not answer to any of the Job's questions. God did not respond to the Friends at all, God is basically ignoring everything that has happened so far. Instead, and those of you who have access to the sermon notes, you will see the beginning of the response. God expresses his true nature. And I'm using, you know, old terminology. God expresses his or her or its true nature what God actually is. Unimaginable, graceful, love itself, unlimiting, infinite potential. In no way can ever a human being ever understand the completion and the wholeness of what God is. And so in, a, in, a, in just one or two chapters, basically God speaks and says, Job, friends, you guys have it all wrong. To be righteous, which means to be aligned with God, with our own divinity, is not about gathering wealth. It's also not about, uh, not a symbol or a result of being God-like or expressing God in every moment. What it means to be truly the children of God is to understand the infinite potential that we all have access to and express that as freely as we can. When you go back to metaphysics, then we understand Job to mean 
someone who believes that he is on the righteous path, which is more closely related to self-righteousness. You probably all understand the difference, right? Righteous and self-righteous. And Elihu, that fourth person, his interpretation is the Holy Spirit. So when you take that whole story and you kind of try to translate it into the context of what we're talking about today, then basically what it says is that Job, even though he felt he was aligned with what he believed God wanted him to do, and he had some evidence that, yes, I have a wife, I have ten children, I have servants, I'm the richest man in the land of Uz. That must be the evidence that I'm doing the right thing. He only was self-serving at that point. And he had to lose everything at first. And he had to endure a lot of pain on himself before he truly started listening. But even his first listening was only to the friends who complained and who pointed out the faults that he had. And what that means is, is what we do to ourselves when we're trying to grow, we often return to a moment where we judge ourselves so much and don't move on. And only the moment when we let Elihu, the Holy Spirit, speak to us is when we get closer to the truth. Only then, when we let the Spirit speak from within us, we get to truly hear what God's message is. Remember, God in unity is not something separate from us. It's very much part of us. We believe in oneness. We believe in an inseparable connection. So Elihu, the Holy Spirit, coming forth within us simply means that we expand our awareness in who and what we are to that God self, that divinity, whatever you call it. And that is the journey. The journey is to go from understanding that whatever limitation we put on ourselves, whatever wealth we gather, or even when we are poor, the judgment we have around being not as wealthy as we would like, this is all connected in materialism. And it is connected to how we usually approach legacy. Leaving a legacy behind sometime in the future for someone else to enjoy. But Job shows us that the ultimate righteousness, the way to be aligned with divinity and with ourselves is to let go of all that and then realize that we always have the ability to tap into that infinite potential that is available to us. That is God's response. And as the story closes, Satan is all gone. Once Job realizes his mistake, that he tried to put God in a box, and he tried to limit God in any way, once he was able to let go and listen to his inner soul, he not only got his riches back, his wealth, his kids, but he doubled it all. And again, when you go back 
thinking about, this is a very old story, uh, thinking about how old this story is, the culture around the story, you realize that there is a transition from a limited self that appears to be aligned with the right thing to do to a more expanded, more uplifted self that has learned to break free from limitations. Ultimately, that is the legacy that we can leave behind, isn't it? The legacy of learning this very simple thing. Whenever we believe we got it, for whatever reason, whenever we believe, now I get it, now I'm enlightened, now I'm spiritual, now I'm perfect, there is always more to learn. A very simple lesson, isn't it? And if it is one of the best gifts that we can give to each other is to be who and what we are, right here, right now, with all the flaws that we might see, with all the judgments we might have, but with a sense of curiosity and willingness to learn and say, here I am, an expression of as much of perfection I can imagine for myself, and yet I am still here to learn and to grow because there is one thing that can never be limited, and it's the truth of who and what I am. And that is in a very different way, maybe for most of you, how we could approach the story of Job in a way that is expansive and let us remember that true legacy has very little to do with the material things that we own and that we gather, but has much more to do with, again, what Maya Angelou so eloquently said, people will forget what he said, people will forget what he did, but people will never forget how you made him feel. So my hope is that for us individually, but also as a community, we really get to learn what that means, to open ourselves up to people that have never heard of the message of oneness, never heard of the possibility of tap into that infinite potential and learn to break free from some of the limitations that are only holding us back, and that our legacy as a community will be that we will reach more and more people over time that can really have that sink in for themselves so that their true wealth is not seen in their material expression, but the true wealth is seen just like how they make feel, make others feel about themselves. So let us take that into meditation for today. <clears throat> Allowing this to sink in for a moment. Just take a deep breath, allow the breath to help your body to relax.
and continue allowing your inhale to remember the truth of who and what you are. Know this to three friends that may show up in your life. And remember that despite the judgments and the limitations, there's always the ability to dive into that Holy Spirit. Just as Job was on his own journey, we enter our journey on our own. We may even struggle with the idea of righteousness and self-righteousness, the idea of perfection expressed in every moment. We're reminded by God's respond, response that truly nothing can ever be put in a box, ever be limited in any way. Truly that the very nature of who and what we are is infinite potential. We use that infinite potential in every moment, and we apply it to our lives. And in that, we learn to expand, to be free, and to let go. So we use this meditation together in this group, joined by everyone online, to remember, to remember what it means to have true strength, to remember what it means to truly be awakened, have clarity, and guidance within ourselves. We escape the darkness that we may put on ourselves. We break free from any bondage that we may have created. We simply remember 
the oneness, the community, the collective of source, of divinity, of our true self. So as we break free from our own limitations, we observe our resistance, we observe our joys and new learnings, and we allow them to be part of our process. We may not think of ourselves as enlightened too much. We may struggle to see the good in ourselves and others. And yet, right now, we affirm and challenge ourselves to trust that our innate divinity is available to us in every moment. So with that trust, that idea, that joy and glory that we may experience, we allow gratitude to take over. A simple practice of remembering that ultimately everything in our lives is worthy to be grateful for. Even our most challenging adversaries are worthy of a moment of thanks as we learn to become one with the creation that we contributed to. So we allow that gratitude to expand to grow into perfect love. And the sense of completion as we realize our perfect wholeness. Because in that name, in our name, and in a name of absolute perfection, we allow ourselves to be in this moment and every moment. And so it is. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. You just heard this week's message and meditation. For the live streams and more information, go to unityfortworth.org.